First Kings chapter eight. Uh, it's a, as Pastor Nathan was mentioning, this is a very long chapter in the midst of a very uh, sort of long digression, uh, pausing on the reign of King Solomon. As we've been sort of surveying these chapters, we, we surveyed chapters 5, 6, and 7 last week, sort of just going over the structure of the temple and all of the things that were involved in it, all of the furnishings, all of the brass work and bronze work and gold work, all the things that went into it, and how they showed us the majesty of this king of kings, and that's what they were pointing towards. And here, as we get to chapter 8, uh, a lot is here that we have to unpack. And still, we have to mention that there's still a a strong sense of positivity sort of in the historian's words as he remarks on King Solomon. He's not at the juncture yet where he's going to make the shift, sort of make the turn, so to speak, to sort of moralize Solomon's life. That's coming in chapter 11. We're going to get there soon. But there's a, we have to stay in this positiveness because you have to see that Solomon here is truly dedicating himself, dedicating this structure that he spent seven years building. And yes, all the people that were within it, he's dedicating all of that to the Lord, to Jehovah himself. You know, there's a reason why we have this here and it's to show us exactly who this God is. The temple is now complete, as we have noted, as chapter 8 begins. In chapter 6, verse 38, it tells us uh, exactly how long it took to build this temple. Seven years. It says in in the eleventh year, or jump back to verse 37 of chapter 6. In the fourth year was the foundation of the house of the Lord laid in the month Ziph. And in the eleventh year, so seven years later in the month Bull, which is the eighth month, was the house finished. Throughout all the parts thereof and according to all the fashion of it. So he was seven years in building it. Seven years uh, constructing this huge structure which was all about worshiping the Lord. All about praising this God, this God who was ever present and always faithful for them. And now here, all that's left to do is to have this ceremony of dedication of the temple and the people in it. And such is what chapter 8 records for us. 66 verses, all sort of uh, elaborating on this very involved ceremony, which served to do a couple of things. It served to really, I think, commemorate, to, uh, we, we could say, immortalize the temple's intended purpose. It's there to, to do what? It's a house of the Lord, a house of worship for the people, a permanent place wherein, wherein the people of God could come and worship their God. Uh, and throughout this chapter, as we will hopefully mention and you'll notice, there is this reminder of, uh, of the Mosaic Covenant. All of the, the promises that God made to Moses are here reaffirmed, as we noted last year, almost 500 years after all of those promises were made to Moses. Here they are now realized, they are now reminded of them as they have this permanent building in which to worship their God. But what it was also, and what I hope to draw out this morning... Because what, what we see, I think, here in all of these 66 verses is just how different Israel's God was. Their God was different than all the other gods that were being pandered about at the time. So says Solomon in verse 23. Notice what he says as he begins this long and extended prayer. And he said, Lord God of Israel, There is no God like thee in heaven above or in earth beneath who keepest 
covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart. There is no one like you. A very strong and bold declaration of King Solomon. Because, you know, some like to lump the God that we have here in the Bible. They like to lump him in with all of the rest of humanity's gods. As if he's just one among the rest in in the index of, quote, deities that mankind loves to serve or to worship. If you're spiritual at all, many would say that this is just one God among many. So pick which one you like the best. Those who do that, though, are demeaning this God by normalizing him with all of the others. By saying that he's no different, you're lessening who this God is. And here Solomon is is exalting and lifting up Israel's eyes to see that their God is different. There's no one like him. There's no God that can compare to him. No one can hold a candle to this God. Because he is the one true God. He's not one among many. He is the one and only And in fact, in Deuteronomy and and in other various parts of the prophets, there is that phrase, there is no other. Repeated throughout, showing us and reminding us that this is a God unlike any other gods. And what's fascinating, to me at least, is that the the structure and the function of the temple itself reminds us of this. It, It proves this, that this God, he's different than other gods. He's not like the gods of of mankind's own making, of his own sort of fabrication. Actually, there's actually four ways that I hope to draw out this morning. Four ways that this God here of the scriptures, the God of the Bible, Jehovah, Yahweh, the only God, he is different than other gods. And I think each of these proofs, which come from this this, this place, the temple, which come from this prayer of the king. They, they confirm that this God, the God of this Bible that you hold in front of you, is the only God worth trusting, worth believing in. And I think we can see that from a couple of different ways. Firstly, notice uh, that the temple is a place where promises are kept. Notice again verse 1 of chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and uh, the chief, chief of the fathers of the children of Israel unto King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. So here, the temple dedication begins very early on with, this, with Solomon gathering together all of the, the, the elders, the sort of chief religious leaders, to transport the ark from the tabernacle now into the Holy of Holies in the innermost place. Part of the temple. And here, notice that's what happens. Verse 3 And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord in the tabernacle of the congregation, and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle, even those did the priests and the Levites bring up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him were before him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told nor numbered for multitude. And the priests brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord unto his place, into the, into the oracle of the house, to the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubim. So here they bring it in. And this, you have to see that this is a very momentous occasion. This is a very significant event for the people of Israel. Because as we sort of hinted at last week, no longer was that portable tabernacle necessary. 
The, the, the tabernacle that was re- repeatedly set up and then torn down as the people of Israel moved and wandered uh, across the wilderness, that is a no longer necessary structure. Why? They have a permanent house for the Lord to dwell in, a place where he abides. And this moment of, of bringing the ark into that very place, that very innermost holy place, the oracle as it calls it, is that significant sort of recognition of the fact that here this is where God will dwell. This is where God is. He has kept all of his promises. And notice this is what Solomon testifies to. Look at verse 12. After all this happens, then spake Solomon, verse 12, The Lord said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. I have surely built thee an house to dwell in, a settled place for thee to abide in forever. This is that moment, a settled place. God has kept his promises. God has kept every single one of the things that he had promised to the people of Israel long before this moment. He has promised them settlement. And now here we are inaugurating this place as the settled place of not just God's people, but of God himself. Because you notice this is what God is here saying. That this moment of the ark coming in is the promise and the assurance that God is present with his people. There's, there's a very obvious way this is fulfilled. Look back at verse 10. So they, they put the ark into that place, into the, into the Holy of Holies. And look at verse 10. It says, And it came to pass, when the priests were come out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. All of a sudden, they put the ark there, and all of a sudden, a cloud of thick smoke fills the whole entire place. And the historian, he doesn't want you to miss it. He doesn't want you to miss what's happening. This is significant, such as why he asked that little comment. This was the glory of the Lord, and it filled the entire place. It was God's glory come down, just like it was in the days of all the wilderness wanderings, where the cloud guided them by day and the pillar of fire by night. It was a reminder of God's presence. It was was a token that God was present for and with his people. And this is why Solomon is here saying, this is exactly what the Lord has said, verse 12. He has promised that he would dwell with us. And look, now here he is. This is an unmistakable sign that God was here. That God was for his people. Of course, this isn't a unique event. Their minds would be drawn back to the days when the tabernacle was first initiated. You don't have to turn there. But in Exodus chapter 40 verses 30 and 35 almost the exact same thing happens as they're inaugurating sort of the use of the tabernacle. It happens with Moses and Aaron. A glory cloud filled the entire place. It is a reminder, it is an evidence that God is present And such is the prevailing message of Solomon's prayer and his blessing. As he begins in verse 14. So there's this great cloud. And he makes this affirmation that this is is why this place exists. It's the presence and the promises of God. And look at verse 14. And the king turned his face about. And blessed all the congregation of Israel. And all the congregation of Israel stood. 
And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which spake with his mouth unto David my father, and hath with his hand fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought forth my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel to build a house, that my name might be, uh, might be therein, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. And it was in the heart of David my father To build an house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And the Lord said unto David my father. Whereas it was in thine heart. To build an house unto my name. Thou didst well that it was in thine heart. Nevertheless. Thou shalt not build the house. But thy son shall come forth out of thy loins. He shall build the house unto my name. And the Lord hath performed his word that he spake. He has performed it. And I am risen up in the room of David my father. And sit on the throne of Israel. As the Lord promised. And have built an house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And I have set there a place for the ark. Wherein is the covenant of the Lord. Which he made with our fathers. When he brought them out of the land of Egypt. You can see Solomon's such excitement here. As he's saying all of those promises. They are coming into fulfillment. I am here as a testimony that God's promises are true. That he promised to lead us out. And here we are in this place of God's dwelling. And that's when he turns in verse 22 and he prays corporately. As Pastor Nathan mentioned, it's a very long prayer. In fact, it's one of the longest recorded prayers in the Bible. Going down from verse 22 through about verse 54 or 53, excuse me. And right away... Solomon is emphasizing how Israel's God is truly one of a kind. Again, look at verse 22. And Solomon stood before the altar in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands towards heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath who keepest covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart. He is not like other gods. He's testifying to that. He's not like other deities. He's not like other other gods people worship. He's different. Why? Because he is a god of his word. Did you notice that? That the the very first thing that Solomon mentions that makes him different is the precise, precise fact that he keeps his covenant and mercy with his people. He keeps his word. The things that he promises to do, they are the things that he actually does. That, as it says in verse 20, that he performs. So, this is a great reminder to to these people here in this congregation. In Solomon's day. Because theirs was a day that was filled with an abundance of of pagan deities. False gods that other heathen nations were, were, were worshiping. It would, it would behoove us to know that they, they weren't known for their faithfulness. <laughs> Other gods weren't known for their loyalty. Actually, you could describe them as, as fickle and erratic and inconstant. They weren't ones to be relied on. And this is why those who were adhering or worshipping these other pagan gods, these man-made deities, they were incessantly and entirely striving to appease them, to, to make them happy. They were walking on eggshells to these other gods because they were afraid of offending them in some way. Because as as much as you might devote yourself to these other lesser gods, you weren't sure that they were going to come through for you. (laughs) 
Those who are worshiping pagan deities, these invented gods, they were never sure what they were going to get. We, of course, know it's precisely because they're praying to something inanimate. They're praying to something lifeless that can't come through for them. That couldn't perform the things that they were hoping for. And such is what makes Israel's God so distinct. He is a God who keeps his word. He fulfills every single thing that he promises to and for his people. Not one thing falls by the wayside. Notice again, verse 23, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath who keep his covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart. Who has kept with thy servant David, my father, that thou promised him, that thou, that thou spakest also with thy mouth and hast fulfilled it with thine hand as it is this day. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David, my father, that thou promised him, saying, there shall not Fail thee a man in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that thy children take heed to their way, that they walk before me as thou hast walked before me. I love that word that he uses there, keep. God, keep, guard that promise that you have made and and perform it in us. This is what the temple was all about. It was about a a place where promises are kept. Not just promises made and never fulfilled, but promises made and fulfilled for sure, for certain. All the days of the Israelites' lives, they would be known and they would be reminded that this is a place where promises are kept. Because of who their God is. He's a promise-keeping God. And you know, in fact, the Israelites would be reminded of this, not just as they were inside the temple, but as they were walking up towards it. There's a great little anecdote in chapter 7. Go back there really quick. In chapter 7, verse 15, as as Solomon has has made a treaty with Hiram, King Hiram of Tyre, to uh, to fabricate a lot of the furnishings that were inside the temple, he, he actually contracts him to make two bronze pillars. And they tell us about them in verse 15 of chapter 7. And he's casting two pillars out of pure brass. But I want you to notice verse 22. Or excuse me, verse 21. Because they give these pillars names, which is quite interesting. And he set up the pillars in the porch of the temple. So in the porch, as you're walking up to the temple, as you are walking up the steps, there's two grand high pure brass pillars that are there. And he set up the right pillar. And called the name thereof Jachin. And he set up the left pillar and called the name thereof Boaz. The names aren't inconsequential. They're not just things to pass over. They're not just there to sort of keep the construction workers uh, readily knowing which pillar they're working with. Jachin, you might want to know, is, is a name which means he, meaning God, will establish That God will establish all the things that he desires and designs. And Boaz is a name which means his strength will perform it. So even as they were walking up and they were seeing these pillars, they would be reminded that God establishes and performs all that he promises to do. That this God, the God that dwells within this temple, was reminding them that these are his words for them. Is Jacob and Boaz. His promises come about because his strength performs it. He always does what he says he will do. And this is our God too. 
I was just struck as I was reflecting on this this week. That this is our God too. The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. The God of Jacob. The God of all of our fathers throughout the Old Testament. He is our God too. He always keeps his promises. His word never fails. This is your God this morning. He's a God who is a promise-keeping God. And I don't mean to say that just to, to make you feel better as some winsome sort of platitude. It's a truth of Scripture that God is a promise-keeping God. And that the things that He has said will come about, will come about. That the things that He has promised to happen, will happen. Because His Word never returns void. Your life and mine is upheld. Like this temple was by pillars. <laughs> By the pillars of a promise-keeping God who says, I am the God who keeps His word. The temple is a place where promises are kept. But secondly, very quickly, the temple is a place where prayers are heard. The temple is a place where prayers are heard. Look at verse 27. As Solomon is here praying, there is another wonderful truth here. And it comes out of a word that's actually repeated several times throughout this prayer. Look at verse actually 28. Where he says, yet have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee today. And there, from verse 28 down through verse 52, uh, the words hear or hearken are repeated 13 times. All of which, of course, are are meant to get in our mind's eye that this God that they're praying to, he is not lifeless, he is not inanimate, he is not a God who is inattentive. He has his ears turned towards his people to hear them. He hears their cries. He hears their prayers. Which of, of course is very different than any other God because all those other gods were false, inanimate objects. This ought to be remarkable to us in and of itself. But it's made even more remarkable when you read verse 27. You have this wonderful truth that God hears his people. But look at verse 27, what Solomon says. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heavens and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded... (laughs) He acknowledges that God is too vast for any sort of created thing to box him up, to keep him contained. He is the uncontainable God. He is too immense for the heaven of heavens. How in the world would he even think of us, even be able to hear us? He's he's too vast for us to comprehend. And yet we have this wonderful truth that this, this God who is incontainable, he turns towards us to hear us. He turns towards us to listen to our prayers. What a wonderful truth. That this immense, this uncontainable God descends as with this cloud of glory to dwell with his people. And as it says in verse 28, to have respect unto their prayers. Respect literally means to turn towards. Have you ever tried to talk to someone without looking at them? It's very hard to communicate. (laughs) Very hard to sort of make sure your point gets across. So if you really want to get your point across, you look at my eyes. 
I want you to see what I'm saying by looking at my face. And this is sort of this similar image that we have of God. That he turns towards his people to look us in the face and listen to our prayers. What an awesome image. That this vast, uncontainable God who is too immense for us to fathom, to fully comprehend. How can we even contain him? He turns and listens. He hears the cries of his children. This is what this temple was reminding them of. That God was available. God was attentive. He was beyond comprehension, but he heard their prayers. He heard their cries. This is a truth for us even today. Yes, right now, you have a God who hears every single prayer that you utter. That, that even the ones that you're, that you're speaking as you drive, he hears those prayers. He hears those cries that you cry out from the depth of your soul where you feel like no one else is listening and you just have to shout out, God, I need you to hear me. He hears those prayers. Because the wonderful truth of it all is that God, he's different. He's not an inanimate idol. He's not just a lifeless object that we're shouting incantations to. He is a living God whose ears are turned towards us, turned towards his people. He's a promise-keeping God. He is a prayer-answering God. But thirdly, and almost most remarkably, because you have to see where all this is going. The temple is a place where promises are kept. The temple is a place where prayers are heard. But look at verse 30. Because the temple is also a place where sins are forgiven. Notice verse 30. And hearken thou to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel when they shall pray toward this place. And hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place when thou hearest, and when thou hearest, forgive. Such a simple prayer that Solomon utters. Hey, God, when you hear us, when you hear the prayers, pardon them. Forgive them. And in fact, five times throughout the rest of this prayer, he prays that simple phrase. Look at verse 30 again. And when thou hearest, forgive. And look at verse 34. Then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy people Israel. Look at verse 36. Then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy servant and of thy people Israel. Look at verse 39. Then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and forgive and do and give to every man according to his ways. And all the way down in verse 50. And forgive thy people that have sinned against thee. And all their transgression wherein they have transgressed against thee. And give them compassion before them who carried them captive. That they may have compassion on them. Each time Solomon is here praying. God when you hear us forgive us. God when you hear us have compassion and pardon us. God in your fullness in your holiness forgive us we pray. He petitions God to exercise his power on behalf of his people. To not just turn towards him, but to turn towards his people and pardon them. This, of course, of you might want to know, is, is keeping in with the rest of what God has covenanted with the people of Israel. 
He's actually repeating some promises all the way back from Leviticus chapter 26. That when God's people fail, that God will restore and he will return them unto his promises. We don't often think about Leviticus as a book of pardon, as a book of forgiveness. But it is. Because this is God's insistent promise for his people that he will remember his word even if his people don't. That he will never forget his covenant even if his people break it. That he is a God of his word and he hears his people's cries and he alone has the power to forgive. He alone has that power. He alone has that ability to forgive people of all of their sins. This is what makes Israel's God different. Unlike any other God that has ever existed. Is that he can actually truly pardon your iniquity. God's forgiveness is genuine forgiveness. Capital F forgiveness one of my friends used to say. It's forgiveness with a face. See, the face of forgiveness is the battered and bruised face of God's own son, Jesus Christ. That's your assurance. They were looking forward to it. We are blessed to look back on this wonderful face that took upon the cross for us. See, it's no imaginary construct. It's no sort of psychological babble to make you feel better that God can forgive sins. He forgives sins in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And now you have a God who pardons all wrongdoing. And when you screw up your life, he does not zap you into oblivion. He doesn't zap you off the face of the earth because of your rebellion. He patiently brings us to the end of our rope. And there he is waiting to forgive, waiting to pardon, waiting as it promises in his word to return us to himself, to restore us to his presence. This is God's promised work. Of course, yes, there's times of judgment. In fact, the ominous nature of this entire book is the very fact that these people who are originally reading this were reading this in exile. They were in that season of God's retribution, so to speak. But they could see this promise. The promise that even there, as they are led captive, there is a place of forgiveness for them. That God returns his people to his side. That God is a God of forgiveness. This is his truest, most deepest work. Nowhere in the Bible will you find the fact that God delights in judgment. In fact, everywhere else throughout the Bible, you find the fact that God delights in mercy. And that he withholds judgment from the people because he is a God of forgiveness. He's a God of mercy. A God who keeps his covenant and mercy for his people. And so he is the God who keeps it all. He is the God who assures it all. And when they pray for forgiveness, they can be sure of it. Because there is a God who is keeping his word for his people. 
The temple is a place where promises are kept. The temple is a place where prayers are heard. The temple is a place where sins are forgiven. And lastly, look at verse 54. Because the temple is a place where lives are sustained. I love how Solomon ends this prayer. Because he closes with a benediction. And so it was, verse 54, that when Solomon had made an end of praying, all this prayer and supplication unto the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. And he stood and blessed all the congregation of Israel with a loud voice, saying. So this benediction comes at the close of the service. A final word for these people to go home that day and remember, remember who their God was. Remember what made him truly different. Different than any other God. What makes him unlike any other God in their known world. It's a petition. It's a benediction that we need as well. Look at verse 56. Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people, Israel, according to all that he promised. There hath not failed one word of all his good promise. Because he's a promise keeping God. Which he promised by the hand of Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. Let him not leave us nor forsake us. That me he may incline our hearts unto him. To walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments which he commanded our fathers. And let these my words wherewith I have made supplication before the Lord be nigh unto the Lord our God day and night. That he maintain the cause of his servant. And the cause of his people Israel at all times as the matter shall require. Here Solomon is basically repeating all that he's been saying again. About the, God's presence, God's promises, God's attentiveness. All the, the things about pardon, the things that we've just gone over as a blessing over his people. But I love the ending phrase of verse 59. That God maintained the cause of his people at all times as the matter shall require. Maintain means what you might think it means. It just means to fashion, accomplish, to sustain his people's cause, their, their judgment, their discernment, their every single step. May God maintain his people's steps at all times. But I love how he he narrows that petition from just a general all times to as the matter shall require. Or to say as each moment necessitates. You have a God who maintains every single one of your steps. Every single day, every single breath that you have on this life is a sustaining breath from God. It's maintained by this God who promises and fulfills all of his promises. This God who pardons and fulfills all of the things that he says he will pardon. It's a God who is so vast and so immense and yet he is involved in your very breath, in your very next step. This is a God unlike any other God. He's a God who maintains his people's cause. Their very everyday uh, humdrum ordinary lives is maintained. It is accomplished by this God. The God who is too big for even heaven to contain. This is what would keep Israel as it says in verse 61 perfect. 
Walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments. It's God sustaining them. God maintaining every single moment of their day. God accomplishing his purposes through them in their everyday lives. Isn't that what you and I need? I don't know about you. I need a God that maintains my every step. My every thought. Because it so easily wanders off. So easily falls by the wayside. You and I will not get far in this life without a God who sustains and maintains our every waking moment. And what is the wonderful promise is that he promises to do this with his hand. Maintain us. To maintain his people's cause. You know, each of these aspects of the temple are there to prove that Israel's God was different he was distinct. He, he wasn't like other gods. And the wonderful fact this morning is that we have the same God. This God isn't different. He hasn't changed in one single degree from this moment. This God that is promising these things to these people is your God this morning as well. And we too have an even more tangible, even more unmistakable evidence that all this is true. No, we don't have a temple to go to. We don't have a a temple to look and pillars to view and stand in awe at. At the promises of God that are fully and finally and forever kept. But we have something better. We have the cross. The cross of Jesus is the place where every promise of God is kept to the fullest. The the cross of Jesus is the place where every desperate cry of sinners is heard. It's heard in Jesus Christ. The cross is the place where every single life is sustained by God's every single moment grace. The cross is the place where every single sin is forgiven. And actually we can make that even better. It's vanquished. It's done away with. Your sin is put in the grave with Jesus. And as we're going to celebrate next Sunday, when he rises in righteousness by faith, that is your resurrection too. Your sin is left behind in that tomb with Jesus. This is the work of God for you. It's the surest evidence of all is the fact that we have a promise-keeping, prayer-hearing, sin-forgiving, sustaining God. And his name is Jesus. You know, this is exactly what he says at the beginning of his ministry according to the Gospel of John. Let me just read the verses. You don't have to just write them down. John chapter 2. Verse 19 is a wonderful moment where Jesus makes a very profound theological statement. Verse 18 says, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. (laughs) When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. 
They believe the scripture that Jesus is the true and better temple. That he is the one through whom all of these promises are yes and amen. He is the assurance of all of these things that the temple signifies. He is in reality. Jesus is the flesh and blood promise of what God said he would do through wind and voice and sacrament throughout all of the Old Testament. Jesus is the living embodiment of all of that. The true and better temple. The the true and better one through whom people can find pardon. Because Jesus pardons him and pardons their sins in himself. The gospel of the temple is this good news that we too have a sure sign that God keeps his promises and hears our desperate pleas for mercy and forgives us of our sins and sustains our every step. Because Jesus is that good news. This is the king's good news. The king of kings. Let us pray.